Hi, everyone. Such a privilege to serve as one of your elders. And if I haven't met you, I would love to meet you and get to know you. So say hi to me someday. So I'm going to be reading from Luke 3, verses 21 and 22. One day when the crowds were being baptized, Jesus himself was baptized. As he was praying, the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit in bodily form descended on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, you are my dearly loved son and you bring me great joy. Hey, also good morning, everyone. Happy President's Day weekend. Anybody have off tomorrow? All right, all right. This is good. <laughs> Greg just read uh, two verses. And I have the privilege to cover just two verses here in the Gospel of Luke chapter 3. The reason we're just sitting on two verses is because there's such weight and meaning to these two verses. And so with the Lord's help, with the Spirit who descended on Christ here in the Jordan River, we pray that you're moved and that you're stirred by these two verses here today. As we look at the identity of Jesus Christ. The first three chapters of Luke, we'll see, and we have seen, that Luke is taking steps and details to, to lay out not only the case for Christ as the Messiah, but also just his, his identity from before he was even born. This is the identity of Jesus. And you just kind of scroll through those first three chapters and you see that it's highlighted in Luke chapter 1, verse 32, that Jesus' identity is to be the Son of the Most High. The next verse, 133, says Jesus will reign over Israel. A couple of verses later in Luke 135, it says Jesus, his identity will be called the Son of God. Luke chapter 1, verse 69 says Jesus' identity will be the mighty Savior. And then chapter 2 and verse 11, it says he'll be the Savior, the Messiah, the Lord. Verse 32 of chapter 2, chapter 2 says this, a light to reveal God to the nations. That's the identity of Jesus. And then right before our passage here today in uh, chapter 3, verse 6, Jesus' identity is to be the salvation one, the man sent from God. And now we hear in verse 22, Luke continues this case for the identity of Christ. And he says this, you are my dearly loved son and you bring me great joy. And so I, the identity of Christ is being revealed. It's being confirmed. It's being affirmed in these passages. Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, doesn't want us to mistake or be confused about who Jesus is, what his true identity is. It's interesting in our world, there's a lot of conversations right now about identity. Who exactly am I? 
I don't know if you've even experienced this in the last few years, but anybody experience identity theft in your life? A couple of us? Yes, it's like, it's such a robbing, defeating thing, right? My parents in their 70s uh, just got a tax bill from the IRS that said they owed an additional $25,000. And after they um, got up off the floor... (laughs) And they realized that someone had taken their identity and had now been in case of mistaken identity. They're in the process of getting that cleared up right now. And so those things can be painful when our identity is mistaken. <laughs> I have a friend named Ben. He's a missionary kid, and he was going to school at uh, Hope, I'm sorry, uh, Fresno Pacific uh, up in Fresno area. And his parents were in Japan, Steve and Kathy Weems, if you happen to know them. I'm selling out Ben right now about this story. But uh, he was coming from his college over Christmas break in Fresno. Um, He flew from Fresno to LAX, and then the goal was to get to Japan to visit his family for Christmas. This is back when Steve and Kathy were living full-time in Japan. Ben got on the small plane in Fresno, flew to LAX, But it was kind of one of these weird deals where he had to get off the plane. It was just a small plane to get on a bigger plane to get to Tokyo. He had to get off the plane, and he had to actually go and get his luggage in baggage claim. Grab his luggage and then go back through um, TSA and then reboard his plane to go to Tokyo. So Ben gets off the small plane in Fresno at LAX, and he leaves his backpack accidentally in the plane with his wallet and his ID. So he gets off the plane, gets uh, on, you know, through the, the halls there, gets down to baggage claim, gets his large suitcase that's going to be with him Christmas in Tokyo, and then proceeds to walk to TSA. And then he gets to that first check, and they say, okay, let's see your ticket and your ID. And Ben goes, no problem. Oh, oh no. <laughs> My... My, my wallet's on this plane that, that I just got here from Fresno. It's just, it's just, I just need to get beyond the gate, and then I can, I can go find, find it. They're like, Where, where's your ID? He's like, it, it, it's, on, it's on the small plane that I, that I took to get here. Well, we can't let you pass if you don't have your ID. My name's Ben. Uh, you just, just trust me on this. We can go find it. I, I can't let you through. You, you, you don't have your ID. That was eight years ago. Ben's still living in the LAX airport <laughs> at this point. <laughs> Though, as every missionary kid has skills to do, he navigated his way through and eventually found his wallet and and got on that plane. But our our IDs are are really important in this world, aren't they? But in our culture, we're asking more than just what's on our license. We're asking ourselves, who am I? What is my identity? What is my purpose? What am I on this earth to do? Where is my value? How do people see me? And so today's question of the identity of Jesus intersects with our own question of what our identity is. Maybe you're in a place in your life where Uh, You're even having an identity crisis, not because your identity has been stolen, but because your life has changed. Maybe you've just entered into retirement, or maybe you've just gotten a new job. Maybe you've just become an empty nester, 
Or maybe you've just invited an adult child to come back into your home. Maybe you've recently um, had a relationship end or you've lost uh, a loved one. Whatever it may be, you may be in a place today that you're facing a, a bit of an identity crisis. And so this passage is perfect. The Lord drew you here for a purpose today. Well, let's step back for a moment, though, from even the question of identity and just look at the scene of of what's happening here in Luke chapter 3. And so John the Baptist is at the Jordan River, and he's baptizing a lot of people. Here in these two verses of Luke chapter 3, we don't have a lot of details about this baptism, but all four Gospels touch on the baptism of Jesus, particularly in Matthew chapter 3, and in Mark 1. John just kind of references it, but, but the Gospels all touch on this uh, event that happened in the ministry, the life of Jesus. And so taking from all four Gospels, we can kind of set the scene for what is happening here. John is out in the wilderness. There's different kind of theories about exactly where he was baptizing in the Jordan River. But if you can kind of make out this map behind me, You can see the Jordan River um, scales most of Israel, hundreds of miles. There's a town called Bethany. Now, there's a couple Bethanies in the Bible, just like there's a lot of Marys in the Bible. This Bethany isn't the one that Mary and Martha lived in, just a few miles away from Jerusalem. This Bethany is a much farther distance. It's probably about 50-plus miles. Think Santa Ana to Temecula, and you have about the the right distance. So John, led by the Holy Spirit, goes out into this desert region to the river. And he begins, as Luke chapter 3, verse 3 proclaims, he begins preaching a message. And this message is, repent. Repent of your sins and turn to God. Now is the time. There's one coming ahead of me or behind me, that I'm not even worthy to tie the sandals of. The pure, spotless lamb, the lamb of God. He's coming, and I'm preparing the way. And so John, this quirky guy, if you know the scriptures, uh, he ate weird things, ate bugs, had hairy jackets, just kind of a, a different guy even for that culture. And yet the people begin to flock to this man and to this area. I love this painting. This hangs in a museum in um, Belgium today. The 16th century painting of the crowds that surrounded John the Baptist. It's kind of like a Where's Waldo. Can you see John the Baptist in here? <laughs> right there, kind of there in the center. The crowds were coming out. They were drawn to this message. There have been 400 years of silence since the last prophet to Israel. And the people were wondering, has God forgotten us? Has God abandoned us? Has God moved on? Maybe that's even a question that you've wrestled with this week. Has God forgotten me? Has God abandoned me? Has God moved on from me? And then this voice in the wilderness cries out, 
And he's calling for radical obedience. He's calling for repentance from sin. And rather than repel people, it actually draws people. This hike from Santa Ana to Temecula. People wander out there wanting to have a true encounter with Jesus. And in these crowds earlier in Luke 3, it tells us is like such an eclectic group of people. There's tax collectors, there's soldiers, there's religious leaders. Like modern day, it would look like this. This is on the left, uh, Sherry Friedrich, who is the OC tax collector treasurer of our county. Now, she's much different, I hope, than the tax collectors in the first century. <laughs> she's the one you write your property taxes to, maybe some of you. In the middle is a soldier, and then on the end uh, would be a, a, a symbol of a religious leader. Obviously, in the first century, not wearing anything that had a cross on it. But what an eclectic group of people, wasn't it, that were drawn out to this random wilderness to repent of their sins, to have an encounter with God. I mean, the crowds were just drawn here. God was doing a unique work, a special work, preparing the way. I don't know if you've heard, but in the last week and a half, there's been a movement at a small college in Kentucky, Asbury University, and there's a seminary right across the street from it as well. It started uh, about a week and a half ago, just a, a normal chapel service with the students from Asbury. And this chapel service, when it got out, a few students decided to stick around and continue to worship. And they worshiped and worshiped and it, it went to midnight and then it spilled over into the next day. And I believe as of this morning, I haven't checked this morning, but I believe there's been continuous worship in there the last week and a half. Have you heard about this at all? It's pretty awesome. Somebody joked though, they're like, I wonder if there's like midterms are due at Asbury right now and everyone's just kind of stalling. <laughs> no, not to be cynical. God's doing something. God's doing something really cool with these students. Somebody asked me, like, what do you think of it? Is it authentic? Is it true? I mean, from what I could see, yeah, I'm not there. But it seems like God's stirring and moving in some really cool ways. And the prayer is that that continues, not just at Asbury in Kentucky, but what, what would we see if we saw an awakening here in the United States and beyond where people couldn't get enough of Jesus? And it wasn't about hype, but it was simply about worship. Now, a little like warning, pastoral shepherding of all of us. We don't need to go to Asbury to experience the presence of God. We talked about that last week. Matt Hemphill did an amazing job, didn't he? Didn't you love just hearing from Matt? He talked about the temple of God and how the temple is now in us. And so you don't have to journey somewhere. You don't have to go out to the Jordan River. You don't have to go to Asbury to meet and encounter the Lord. And yet it also is so encouraging just to gather together with people who are like-minded and who want to lift up the name of Jesus. That's, that's why we meet here on Sundays, right? So we don't just do this in a vacuum. We're not just solo Christians. We gather together to spur one another on. 
And that's what's happening at Asbury right now. That's what was happening out in the Jordan River. Incredible. So this eclectic group of people. And then here in Luke chapter 3, verse 21, something kind of surprising happens. Jesus shows up. He's in the crowd and, and now he steps forward. And maybe kind of the crowds part as, as Jesus walks up. Some may know who he is. Probably most do not. And Jesus now approaches John the Baptist. And Jesus says, as we read in Matthew 3, it's time for me to be baptized. And so like the million dollar question with inflation, $10 million question uh, today is why did Jesus get baptized? If he's the pure spotless lamb, and if John the Baptist is calling people to repent from their sins and then be baptized, why would Jesus, with no sin, be baptized? It's, it's kind of a perplexing question, and it's one that I hope to just even touch on and adequately answer even in these moments. Now, John the Baptist had this same question. If you're in Luke 3, now just go back in your Bible to Matthew 3. And that's where we get a better description of John's interaction with Jesus here in this scene. Matthew chapter 3. I'm reading from the New Living Translation, if you have that version. If not, you can follow on in your version and you'll, you'll understand it. Matthew chapter 3, verse 13 says this. Are you there? Are you there? Are you there? says this, Then Jesus went from the Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. But John, verse 14, tried to talk him out of it. I'm the one, John said, who needs to be baptized by you. Recognizing the identity of Jesus, right? So why are you coming to me? Verse 15, But Jesus said, It should be done, for we must carry out all that God requires. And so John agreed to baptize him. So setting the scene, Jesus comes forward, came all the way from Galilee, even farther from the people in Jerusalem. He came down from the north. He approaches John, his cousin. John's like, I'm not worthy to do this. I cannot do this. You should be baptizing me. You're the holy one. You're the lamb of God. You're the one with the authority. You're the son of man. Baptize me. And though Jesus returns it and says, no, 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 this must be done. And in a different translation, the one that I grew up memorizing, it says, this must be done to fulfill all righteousness. So Jesus, aware of God's will, aware of his identity, says this must be done to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, what Jesus is doing is threefold. One is he's identifying with Israel. Jesus is living the life that the nation of Israel was called to live but could not. Remember, the nation of Israel was in a covenant with God. God said, I will bless you and I will make you great and you'll be a blessing to all the nations. But the nation of Israel continually falls on their face and messes up and is disobedient to God. 
And so you see the cycle in the Old Testament of the nation of Israel saying, you are the one true God, Yahweh. And then they go chase other gods. And then they repent. You're the one true God, Yahweh. And then they go chase other gods. And then they repent. There's just this repentance and sin cycle over and over again in the Old Testament. And yet God in his mercy still prepares the promised land for them. God in his infinite grace. You see, the God of grace is not just in the New Testament. The God of grace is in the Old Testament too. Amen? Amen. And so the God of grace of the Old Testament, despite the nation of Israel, the covenant people, God's chosen people, despite their sin, God eventually gives them the promised land. And do you remember what he does? He has them cross the Jordan River to get to the promised land. Joshua chapter 3, verse 5, you can see it on the screen here. It says, but then Joshua told the people, purify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do great wonders among you. And if you remember the story, the nation goes to the banks of the Jordan, and the Jordan splits. And they're able to walk through the Jordan River. Mimicking even what happened at the Red Sea, right? When God took them out of captivity. Now here at the Jordan, he reminds them that they were in captivity, that they've now been freed, and they can enter the land of milk and honey. It happened right here at the Jordan River. This is, this is like the entrance, the portal. It's like Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe. When they, when they open, what is it, the cabinet, dresser. This Jordan River represents this promise. And now Jesus returns to the Jordan River. Jesus goes into the water, not to purify himself like the Israelites needed to do because he's the spotless lamb. But Jesus returns to the Jordan symbolically to identify with the nation of Israel and symbolically to say, when I come out of this water, now you can enter the land, not just of milk and honey, but the land of eternal life. The land of full forgiveness of your sins once and for all. Isn't that awesome? And so he identifies with the people. This must be done so I can fulfill all righteousness. I'm showing the nation of Israel here at the Jordan, this symbolic place, what I am having them enter into. The ultimate promised land. And then Jesus is baptized to identify with us. We are in desperate need of repentance, of saying, Lord, I've fallen short of your holiness. I am broken. I've chosen to say no to you and yes to my flesh. We are in desperate, desperate need of being cleansed. We are in desperate, desperate need of being forgiven. Jesus, as the spotless lamb, took our place. The righteous one stepped into the place of the unrighteous ones. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says it so well. In fact, you have to forgive me. I think my last three sermons I've given this passage to you. Because I just keep going back to it. I love it so much. You can see it on the screens. And can we, I think last time I, I, last, um, time I shared here, 
I had us read this out loud again, and I want us to do it again because it just is so powerful. So say this with me. Say it with me. For God made Christ to never send to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Awesome. So great. If you're having an identity crisis here today, just know that Christ has stood in your place. You can identify with Jesus. Amazing. I was emailing back and forth with uh, someone who used to attend Calvary and, and let me know recently that they're no longer a Christian. I was just breaking my heart. And we were talking through, well, what are the reasons that you've walked away from God? And they had some legitimate um, pain that had happened to them in the church. But then as we're riding back and forth, I just said, you know, I just want you to go back to Jesus. Jesus is so beautiful. Jesus is so wonderful. Jesus is so amazing and holy and powerful and great. Look to Jesus. And I would encourage myself and all of us to do that too. He who was without sin became sin on our behalf. Jesus was baptized to identify with Israel. Jesus was baptized to identify with us as sinners even though he was sinless. And therefore, we can identify with him. As he identifies with us, we can now identify with him. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you are now in a relationship, an ongoing, active, living relationship with Jesus Christ. You are in Christ. His righteousness replaces your unrighteousness. His sinlessness replaces your sin. It's incredible. The inheritance is the blessings that we have. In Jesus' baptism, this was the identity that was confirmed for him. Luke chapter 3, the last part of 21, and then all of 22. It says, as he was praying, the heavens opened. What do you think that was like? The heavens opened. Skies opened. And it says, the Holy Spirit in bodily form descended on him like a dove. <laughs> And a voice from heaven said, you are my dearly loved son and you bring me great joy. We see the triune Godhead here. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father is that voice from heaven. The Spirit is the dove that descends on Jesus. And then we see the Son in the person of Jesus Christ. One God, three persons, co-eternal, co-equal, totally unified, perfect love, perfect unity, perfect communication. The triune Godhead shows up in our world. Whoa. It's awesome. And the Holy Spirit and God the Father confirm on the Son in this moment, you are the loved son. There is great pleasure, there is great joy in you. In May, coming up this year, uh, Charles in England, you know that guy? <laughs> 
He's already been um, you know, named as the king of England, whatever that means in 2023. But in May of this year, he'll have his official inauguration. And there'll be this moment where they actually place the crown on his head. If you will, this is a crowning moment for Jesus here in the Jordan River. In the muddy, murky river out in the desert with a wild prophet and politicians and soldiers and religious leaders, this is the inauguration of Jesus. In Psalm chapter 2, it's a messianic psalm. We read that it says, the king says, this is my son. And then in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, it's another messianic psalm, I mean, uh, passage. As the prophet Isaiah proclaims the future Messiah, and he says, this is my well-pleased one. So the father here in the Jordan River is quoting Psalm 2 and Isaiah 41. Very, very intentional. This is a coronation ceremony. The king has arrived. The ministry is about to start. Get ready. Get ready. The next three years are going to be insane, amazing. God in your midst, Emmanuel, God with us. And I love, love, love that Jesus was crowned here, not in some ornate ceremony in Jerusalem, but out in a muddy river. It even reminds us of the humility of Jesus, that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Next week, we'll, we'll talk through more of this in Luke 3, of, of this identity of Jesus. But I think it was even very important for him and his humanity to have this happen at this moment. You are the dearly loved son. You bring me great joy. Confirming he's the Messiah, giving him the identity he needs to now go do ministry. Now, follow me on this part. Your coffee may have worn off already, but I don't want you to miss this. When you're in Christ, you can, as a follower of him, also sit in this identity. You are dearly loved. You bring the Father great joy. Have you internalized that recently? You are dearly loved. You bring the Father great joy. What would it look like this year? Let's not even think about even this year. Let's just think about right now. What would it look like if you stepped into this identity? If you were reminded that this is your identity in Christ. Now, if you've already been baptized, you probably didn't have the Holy Spirit descend on you. The skies open up and this proclaimed over you, right? And yet, in Christ, 
You're identified with him. Romans chapter 5 and chapter 6 say it so beautifully. Romans is really a commentary on the Gospels. Kind of fills in some of the, the, the blanks here, the questions we have of, of things like the baptism. But in Romans 5 and 6, it says that Jesus was the new Adam. The one that actually lived perfectly. And then in Romans 6, it says you were buried with Christ and then you're risen with Christ. Spiritual baptism. And that you identify with him. You are dearly loved. There is joy over your life in Jesus Christ. Okay, so back to the identity crisis. If any of us are having that identity crisis today, I want you to step into this identity, the one that you have in Christ. What would it look like today? What things would you stop chasing if you really knew this was your identity? What things would you start pursuing if you knew this was your identity? We're going to worship in just a moment. And I'm just going to invite you. We're feeling like the Lord's wanting to do business with our church. Business in a really good way. Uh, over this month of getting ready. And so we're going to invite you and as we worship, we're going to have uh, really a, a good extended time to worship right now through music. But we want to invite you, if, if you even just be reminded of your identity or if you even just want to, in a sense, go, I need to step into this, I want to invite you even just to come up to the front here. And you can kneel and you can just prayerfully say, God, I've been living a false identity. I've been chasing an identity that, that really has nothing to do with the truth of who you say that I am. May I understand today in a fresh way that I am dearly loved and you have joy over me. May I step into that. So I just want to invite you. You can come up to the front and kneel. You can stand. We'll have prayer folks over on either side of the platform. If you just want to come up and say, pray over me today. I am not believing a word that guy said. And I just need prayer to step into this with confidence. And so we're just going to give us some room to do this right now. And so will you just close your eyes? And maybe even just with your palms open in a, in a physical act of surrender and openness. I would just love, love, love to pray over all of us. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we praise you. Thank you, Jesus, for stepping in and living the life none of us could live. Thank you that you came to not be served, but to serve. Give your life for us sinners. Thank you that in you, Jesus, we can be clean, washed, forgiven once and for all. Thank you, God, that the reality is we are dearly loved by you. But God, we confess the enemy's done a number on us. The belief that we're dearly loved, that you have joy over us is, is fleeting. 
God, would you restore the joy of our salvation today? We pray this in the name of Jesus, the one who saves. Amen.